when the heart of a man can bow and say amen to what God has chosen for him, for her, which he or her themselves would never have chosen, but they're able to accept by grace in humble submission what God has chosen that they would not have chosen when that has we have a clear evidence that someone is walking with power that's beyond ourselves. Someone has learned to know the Lord. Someone is walking with God. And we tend to fight our circumstances and resist the things that God brings into our life or allows into our lives. And God does not cause cancer. God does not send robbers into our house to rob us of our things. When those cows begin dying down there in Costa Rica after that earthquake, and the backpack sprayer on the wall in the feed room fell down, it had some veneno in there, it had some poison in there that we used to spray those worms that burn under the skin of the cows, and Sprayer broke and that poison across the floor and then the feed bags fell down from the other side and landed on top of that poison and then the rush and the haste and the lack of water and pipes broke and bent in the barn and no electricity and all that happened to try to feed the cows. Someone grabbed that bag, not realizing what had happened and fed that to the cows and of 30 cows, 26 got sick from that poison of those 26, 12 died over a period of two weeks. And we were trying to fix these cows and nurse them and help them, and they were dying one by one. And at one point, we had eight people helping with irrigating those animals and trying to give medicine. And I was so frustrated and so weak and so tired and worn out from digging holes to bury cows. And I went into the study and I fell down on my knees and I said to God, I said, if you want to kill the rest of the cows, kill them all. And I was shaking and I was in bad shape emotionally. I wasn't very capable of handling that situation then. And though I didn't hear any voice as far as I know, I don't know how God did this. I have no idea what happened next. I just heard these words. Dale, I don't kill cows. I didn't kill any of them. And all I can tell you was that that moment, peace filled my heart and all was well. And the more cows died after that, it was all God's. It was no longer mine. And God said, I don't kill cows. I don't know what you're facing in your life tonight. I do know what a few of you are facing because you told me. But we've been talking about God this week. And there's a very, very important message that we need to share tonight. And so may those of you that are here just open your hearts to what God might teach us this evening. And we'll trust him to uh, to guide us to these thoughts. And before I get into that, maybe I'll just briefly say that the surgeon was very, very pleased with Suzanne's progress in the last 24 hours and told her that she could be discharged this afternoon between 4 and 5 o'clock. She is now at my son's home 
and uh, resting and doing quite well, and we're very, very glad that she's able to uh, be with us again. And uh, if you continue to pray, it's, it's her desire to, to be in this tent before these meetings are over, and, and we don't have very many days left, and so we will trust the Lord for that. I'm not going to review all the messages we've had this week so far. But I want to speak at least to one person tonight. Maybe 20 people. Maybe 100. I don't know how many are in this category. All of us can benefit from what we say here. I trust we will tonight. But though this God is so real and so near and so capable and so abundantly willing to bless us, there are those of us who do not know him. And for hard as we try to search him and find him, something is hindering our finding and knowing God. For as much as we realize that this Bible contains his holy word and reveals his nature and purpose and person to us, we don't find much benefit in reading the scripture. It's hard for us to do it. It's a laborious thing to read the Bible. And though we know that in the secret place of prayer we find ourselves in communion with God, it's very, very difficult to find the time. The day rushes by. We kneel down and can't think of anything to say. We don't understand why we're praying. It seems like such a futile exercise. It doesn't seem to do much good. Did God even hear what I said? What difference did it make if I took that time or not? And we don't have this relationship and union and partnership with the God of heaven. We don't have this communion with the Holy Ghost, which means that we are partners together on this earth with the Holy Ghost of God. And we don't have that. And we don't feel it. And we don't sense that that because we had this time together in the uh, at the headquarters of this universe, and there we received the blessing and the direction and the strength of the day, and then we sent out into the uh, affairs of life. And God chose to use us. And we don't sense that. We're not aware of that. And we live basically like the people who know not God at all. They never think of the fact that they need the Lord to help them wire that house. To, com- to, to finish that uh, work of engineering that they're preparing for that bridge. To do that surgery and that patient, whatever the task is, to finish those cabinets, to build that mini barn, to put shingles on that roof. To milk that cow, to gather those eggs. And you can do it all without God. But blessed is the person who finds the strength and blessing and help of God in what he's doing. We need to know God. We need to know him. We need to know him as our own God. And I realize that there are days in life for everyone. For the Apostle Paul was this way. For Jesus himself it was this way. For all of us there are days that are more routine than other days. God is not always performing miracles in our lives. God is not every day doing dramatic and spectacular things in our experience. There are times when that Trust and faith in God, just faithfully trusting, faithfully believing, faithfully knowing that He is ours and that we are His, gets us through the day with joy and peace 
Though we did not see, maybe on certain occasions, dramatic revelations and demonstrations of his presence. But there are times when there's no doubt about it. And then we thank the Lord and bow down and worship. And we can worship, we worship him because he's Jehovah. Whether he demonstrated his omnipotence in our presence that day or not, we know that we are here because we are his. We are here because we are his. Hosea chapter 6. Knowing him as our own God. Hosea chapter 6. That's a minor prophet, the first of the minor prophets. Read here, verses 1 through 3. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. Trust him. And we didn't see the results yet. Trust him. And we're still wondering what the result is going to be. Trust Him. And we have not just seen this spectacular breaking through and the heavens did split open. And we have not lived, experienced this open heaven. Trust Him. And the clouds are still dark and the storm is still blowing. Trust Him. And the thunder and the lightning and trust Him. Follow on. Continue on trusting Him by faith, believing Him. By faith, thanking Him. By faith, recognizing His greatness. Something's going to happen. Trust Him. Continue to trust Him. The God of heaven. It's a secret for Christian living. Chapter 12, verse 6 of this same Hosea. Hosea, I guess you say. I'm not quite sure you pronounce that word in your language. 12.6 Therefore turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. That's what we're saying. Wait on thy God continually. And, and, and God is not late. And God is not just holding out on us. And God is not on vacation. And, and God does not have it, in, ha, have it in pause mode. He doesn't have his, he doesn't have his telephone in airplane mode. He, he is not ignorant of our situation. And, and, and if we feel like he's holding out on us, we feel it's taking too long, we feel like God is not responding. It's because there's a holy God whose ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are Greater than our thoughts. And he has everything perfectly planned. And God is arranging all kinds of things. We'll hear more about that tonight. God is arranging all kinds of things in this universe that we know nothing about. And we think it's us. There was a young man in his tent a few nights ago. He asked a young lady for a courtship. The young lady was in a situation in her life where she was not able to say yes at that moment. It was hard on that young man. He had prayed about this and was convinced that God was leading that way in his life and, and he was ready to move forward with this and, and there's a hesitation. So he stands here and I'm talking to him. I'm saying, young man, it will all be well. Be patient. Trust the Lord. Wait on him. You feel that uh, maybe... Maybe my life is in order. Maybe God has to do something to me. Maybe I'm not ready. Maybe God sees that I'm not qualified. Maybe God wants to change something in my life. Maybe I'm not ready to go. 
It's okay to think that way, young man, but remember something. On the other end, there's a young lady. And you don't know the circumstances in her life that God wants to perfect or change or improve or put it in order so this thing could all work out. Let, allow God to do that. And God has all kinds of things to arrange so that the holy purpose that he has for you and I can be beautifully brought together in a tapestry that one day we will well understand and today we don't understand it. Wait on thy God continually. John chapter 17, verse 3. You know that verse by heart. The importance of knowing God, for this is life eternal. That they know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And Jesus is saying this to his Father. This is life eternal, knowing him. Truly knowing him. These are powerful words. And I want to take you to 1 John 2. And someone has already quoted from this passage tonight in this tent. I've written to you, verse 13. I've written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. That's repeated again then in verse 14. It's there again. Chapter 4, verse 6. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth us, us not. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And Jesus said that the religious ones of his time knew not God. And he said, neither does his word abide in you. And then we ask ourselves, do we know God and does his word abide in us? Does his word abide in us? These are very, very beautiful thoughts. Now, how do we get to know God? And though there are many, many things we could say tonight about that subject, I'm going to limit my comments this evening to two very simple and I trust easy to understand Bible teachings about how we can come to know, personally know God as our own God and know Him as no one else knows Him and have Him working in our lives as He's working in no one else's. Because only you can do what God created you to do in the place where you are in life. I'll just give you an example. Eliab was one of the older boys there, Jesse's son. Eliab was with Saul in the army. Eliab was a big man. Eliab was bigger than his younger brother, youngest brother, David. Eliab looked like a warrior when he looked at him. And when Samuel first saw him, he thought, surely this would be the king of Israel because Saul was a big man. He thought the next one would be big too. I guess he thought that to be a king, it takes a yardstick. You figured out that way. Who's going to be the king? God said no. But he's in the camp. And while he's in this camp, there's a paladin. There's a great giant that comes out across the valley and stands there between the two camps and defies the God of heaven. And, and uh, Elihab did like the rest of them did. For as big as he was, he shrunk back. Went to hide. Got away from that great giant, Goliath. And his younger brother came along. And I, I think I'm like Eliab many times in life. I, I think there are times when God would say, Dale, get it done. There it is. Do it. Go for it. And speak to them. Take care of it. Minister to it. 
Do something about it. And then, either it does not get done, or somebody else has to do it. And, and David did it. And somebody else could have done it. I often wonder why Jonathan didn't do it. Maybe Jonathan was not there. I don't know why Jonathan didn't do it. It seemed like he would have had the faith, the strength, the insight, the understanding to do it. David came and did it. Little fellow. What is this coming out here? What, 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 do you, what, what, does, what, what does this, what is this army sending out across this plain here? What's this little fellow doing over here? And it was, it was David. How does he become our own God? How do we come to know him as our own God? I don't know if you can remember the first time in your life. Maybe it's never happened to you. Would you listen tonight? Would you please pick this up and put it into your heart? Can you tell me when the time was in your life when you became consciously aware that God was your own God? And maybe you, maybe he was your father's God. That was Jacob's experience. Maybe he was your grandfather's God. That was Jacob's experience. But it was not his own God. He never referred to God as his own God. The God of my grandfather Abraham. The God of my father Isaac. He, he never said my God. He couldn't say it. When the time came, he could say it. And the time has come in your life and my life when we can say it. That he's my own God. And we have the evidence of it, the proof of it. We, we know what God has done. We know the union. We know the relationship. We, we have evidence of his care, of his personal involvement in my life. That's where, where each of us must come to. Now, how do we get to know him as our own God? I told you I was going to share two ways. He comes to be our own God. This is the first one. When we allow him to love us. That sounds very simple, doesn't it? That sounds very, very simple. When we allow him to love us. It's a very, very important statement. God is love. We read that verse the other evening in this place. Love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God. And knoweth God. For God is love. But does he love me? And yes, God does love me, but that's not the problem. The problem is not on God's side. The problem is not whether God loves me or not. That's, that's understood. The Bible says that. But, but, I don't receive His love. I don't allow Him to love me. I can do without His love. I've done well in life without it. I've learned to live without the love of others. I've had to live that way. And what happened to Paul Beidler, Pop Beidler, when he was 34 years of age, after being an orphan and living in the Bethany Children's Home in Wimblesdorf? What happened to him that changed him was this. No one to love him. No one to love Pop Beidler. But at 34 years of age, and though he's a tall man, a big man, a strong man, he bowed his heart in the presence of God and allowed something that never happened to him before. He allowed God to love him. I'm going to say it another way. He recognized his need. 
He decided he can't go on anymore without God. And when he came to that place, something very, very beautiful happened. Something very powerful happened in his life. I did not realize that I did not allow people to love me. I didn't know that I was that way. I, I was not aware of that. I became aware of that in a very, very strange way. With the way the Lord taught me the, the lack of love in my life. I didn't know about it. You know, when a person lives without love, doesn't know what it is, he doesn't know he's missing it. He doesn't know how much you need it. He doesn't know the difference it would make if you had it. When you, when you live without it, you don't know. And we had a son that drowned in Costa Rica. No one saw me cry at that funeral. I wasn't about to let anyone know how much that hurt me. I was strong enough to hold everything together and got through that funeral. We were only there seven weeks. I didn't know any of the people. I couldn't even understand the language in which the funeral sermon was preached. We hadn't learned the Spanish language yet. Braced up to it. Sometime later, I was in the state of Georgia. I was supposed to be preaching. I got there somewhat early, and people were starting to come into this weekend Bible conference. And a young lady walked in there. I say young lady, she's a grandmother now. I'd not seen her for 34 years. The last time I saw her, she was in fifth grade, and we were riding in the school bus together. And now she's the wife of a bishop in the southern part of the United States. And they came in there, and I looked over there, and I thought I recognized that face. And, and, and sure enough, and we were making some acquaintance there. And then some more people gathered together, some of the other teachers and ministers that were going to be speaking in this meeting, and we formed kind of a circle there. And one of them said, Brother Dale, do you have a picture of your family? And I don't often have one, but that time I did. And someone said, would you tell us the story of what happened to your son? I began to tell them that story. I looked at the eyes of these people. They were standing around that circle listening. And the, the eyes were kind of, kind of, you know, just kind of moist. As I was telling that, I could just feel that these people were deeply interested And as I was telling this to these people, all of a sudden the tears just started running out of my eyes. I started crying and shaking. And this little circle kind of drew around close. And uh, I did something in my life that I don't know if I ever consciously ever did before. I allowed them to minister to a deep need in my heart that I had no idea how to take care of. And I received their love. And when that happened, God was there too. And we learned to know our God when we allow him to love us. When God loves us, he's doing something for us that we cannot do by ourselves. When we love people, it's because we help them with something that they have a need in their life. And we serve them without looking for recompense, without looking for reward. We're not expecting to get paid for it. Love expects nothing back. Love gives without expecting anything in return. And that's why God loves us. When he gave us his only begotten son, he did it without expecting to get anything back. It was all cost on his part. 
But I don't benefit from it until I need it. I don't benefit from it until I sense the need of my own life for what the Son of God has done. And I reach out and can receive that and humble myself and recognize that I cannot go through life anymore without this help. My life, wife tried for many years to love me. She didn't, couldn't get through. She had no way to get through. I learned to live a young life as a young person without love, and I kept on doing that. Through church experiences and through who knows what. And we had beautiful experiences with people, and we loved to, to be with people. That was very, very nice. But it was okay as long as I was helping them and serving them, but they weren't going to help me. The day came when that had to change in my life. And I thank God for that. We learn to know God when we allow him to love us. We don't know him as our own God until that happens. We can resist that love. And no one can love until they've been loved. We can't love our wives. We can't love our children. We can't love each other until we've been loved. Until we find out what that's like. To receive that love into our hearts, we must receive it first. We love him because he first loved us. You know, the prodigal son came to the place in life when he resisted and resisted and resisted, can make it by his by himself and had his world put together and knew how to manage his affairs, knew what to do with the funds, and took his father one third of his father's inheritance, and soon it was gone, and the time came. When he had to allow somebody to love him. And it's very, very interesting to me that the person he thought about when he was at the bottom of his resources, he thought of his own daddy, a, a man whom he had chosen to leave and decided, I'm going to go away from my father's house and going into a far country. Daddy. Daddy, in my father's house, there are servants in my father's house, there's bread in my father's house. I will arise and go to my father. A tremendous change happened to him when he allowed his father to wrap his arms around him. Something I've never experienced in my life. Brother Clinton, put your hand on the shoulders of your sons. Brother Clinton, let them feel the care, the concern, the interest you have in their lives. Brother Clinton, your sons cannot live without your love. Mama, take care of those boys, Mama. I don't know if you have any daughters or not. Take care of those daughters. The elder son continued to live without love. The elder son didn't make the mistake the prodigal did. The elder son didn't run away from home and waste his daddy's money. He would have had twice as much as his son had. He had the, he was, he had the prima heritore. He had the, what you call that in your language? He had the, he was the firstborn. The birthright, that's what you call it. He had the birthright. He got twice as much. He, you never did it for me. I never wasted it for you. You never haven't done it for me. Look what I've been doing here. I've earned everything I'm worth around here. Didn't need love. Very, very capable young man. 
and, and, and didn't go into the feast and would not bless his brother and would not forgive. And his father came pleading to him. He would not receive love. He didn't need it. Has your father in heaven been loving you? What is love? It's not a substance. It's not a gas. It's not an energy. Agape love is probably a way to describe a relationship. We, we, we have something going on between two people. And, and one is very needy. And the other one sees great opportunity and great potential and is going to do all he can. And, and, and though he gets nothing from it, he's going to invest everything he can into this life. And does it willingly. And, and rejoicingly. And, and, and broods over it. And loves to do it. Looking forward to more opportunities and more extravagant ways to prove that love to him. It's interesting to me in the Bible that (laughs) the Bible has to tell daddies after they're married to love their wives. You would think on the wedding day that would never ever be necessary to say such a thing. But the truth is that what's going on before marriage, this courtship experience and this infatuation of being together and the thrill of uh, driving into the driveway, meeting her on the porch, can be something other than a coffee love, something other than self-sacrificing contribution to the life of another that cooking up and take care of the needs themselves. I was there in Mexico translating for some American doctors who came down there to have a medical clinic there in the uh, in a very poor area, and they had used a little school building there, and each doctor was in a various in a different classroom, and they put me in with a doctor, and he didn't know Spanish, and these people were coming in there one by one. I think we treated some forty patients that day, just that doctor himself, and the doctor was getting tired at the end of the day. I could tell it; he was getting a little bit quick with his words, a little bit impatient. I could tell that that was happening. I was trying to put a put a uh, a shock absorber between him and the patients. Because they heard me instead of him or understood me instead of him. I think they understood his spirit and a car drove in. I saw this car come in out the window of the schoolroom. And and, the, and several men got out of the car and a girl got out. And, and then these fellows all picked up this person who was in there, this young man. They picked him out of there, lifted him up and brought him in. And I, I thought to myself, what room are they going to, go, going to go into? And they came into our room and this doctor was tired at the end of the afternoon and they laid this boy there on the table. And the doctor said to me, what do they want? Ask them what they want. And I asked him what happened. Well, this is our brother. And this is his girlfriend. And he dove into a pool of water. And he didn't know it was so shallow that he hit his head on a rock and broke his neck. And he's been paralyzed from his neck down ever since. And we heard these American doctors came. And so we brought this boy to the doctors. We want you to fix fix our brother. She wants you to fix her boyfriend. Would you please fix him? Can you do something for my brother? And the doctor said to me, Dale, tell them that I can do absolutely nothing. Those were exact words. You tell them that I can do absolutely nothing. I don't know how many of you people know me. 
But if you know me at all, you know that I will not say that to anybody. That we can do absolutely nothing. The God of heaven does not do nothing. And so I dismissed the doctor and looked at the young lady. And something like this is what I said. Now, when this accident happened, that spinal cord was severed at a C4 location, cervical 4. And your friend will be paralyzed for the rest of his life, as far as we know now. I'd like to ask you something. Do you love this young man? She said, yes, yes, Brother Dale, I, I love this man. I said, would you be willing to marry him the way he is? If that's what I must do, then that is what I will do. Will you feed him with a spoon? Will you comb his hair? Will you bathe his body? Will you fasten the buttons on his shirt? Will you set him on his chair? Will you push him around the room? Will you take care of your husband? Yes, I am willing to do that. If that's what I must do, that is what I will do. Then I said, there's grace from heaven to help you take care of that. The cause was not changed, Brother David. But there was grace from the God of heaven. And that doctor could do absolutely nothing. But what that lady would need to do for her husband in that condition as a quadriplegic is what I have come to learn that my Father in heaven needs to daily do for me. And when we come to that place in life, it's a beautiful experience in Christian in the Christian walk to allow God to do in our lives what we cannot do for ourselves. And I will say one more thing. That young man was aware of his limitations, aware of his handicap, aware of the need he had for others. My problem is that God knows so much better than I do how needy I really am and what I cannot do and what he must do for me. But if only I would yield my heart, I would get to know him as my own God. If I would allow him to love me. What is this love? It's a life-flowing relationship. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Can you imagine what was going on there with that rich young ruler as Jesus looked at him and loved him? What was going on there? As he loved him, what was going on? He saw him, understood things that that young man knew nothing about and saw potential and opportunities and wanted to do it in his life. Wanted to use him, include him, call him, take him with him, send him forth. Couldn't do it. He loved him. The opportunity was there. The young man was right in the presence of omnipotence and did not know it. He understood him. He knew exactly what was wrong in his life. He was willing to accept him and provide what he lacked. And would have done so without shaming him or making him feel inferior. Would have offered to be with him and include him. But the young man, the young aristocrat, would not receive it. Love saves us from the crippling neurosis that hinders our relationships. It provides freedom from the sin that destroys us. Love does that. When Christ comes, it does that. 
And some accept that love. And others resist it. How does God love us? No one can answer that question. I certainly can answer it. I've seen a little bit of what God has done to love me. I've not seen all of it. But I've seen enough of it to be thankful. I've seen enough of it to buy my heart. I've seen enough of it to cause a surrender. I've seen enough of it to say, I don't want to continue on in life alone. We have no idea what costs God to love us. What extravagant plans he has laid out just for the purpose of winning the total confidence of just one single person. God has done tremendous things for God so loved the world. I want to say something. Would you just take that verse, that golden text of the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And let me see who I have here. Young man, what is your name? Sit beside this young lady. What is your name? Matthew. Now listen. For God so loved the world. For God so loved Matthew that he... And Matthew, you are incapable of finishing that sentence. You do not know what God has done because he loves you. And when we become aware of that, when we can put our name into that text, for God so loved, for God so loved Dale, what did he do? Sent a drought. A drought on the cornfields, alfalfa fields of a dairy farmer in Tennessee. Three years in a row, every drought was worse every year, the worst than the one before. And resources were gone. No longer was there any feed for the cattle. We had to buy everything that the cows ate from out of state. It was so expensive, the dairy prices did not pay for the losses that the drought was causing. The third year, the worst year, we decided to rent more land than we ever did to try to make up for the roughage that we lost the previous years. And so there was a widow there that had a very nice farm, and she offered to rent it to us. We paid more rent that year than we ever paid for rent before, and more land, and planted that whole farm in corn. And that corn came up so very beautifully, it just looked like a Garden of Eden. The way that corn was, my son planted, did a beautiful job. It looked so very good. And then the rain stopped. When that corn was about as high as your knee, it was as brown as a paper bag. And completely dead. The ground opened up with cracks. You could put your hand down into your elbow. And on a Tuesday night. After supper. I told the family to get in the pickup truck. We all drove over to Mrs. Fan's farm. And we parked the truck along the side of the road. And we all walked into those. Wasted and dead corn stalks. And knelt there between the rows. And there we prayed. and asked God what he's going to do. What shall we do? We, here we are. We can do no, we can go no further. And then I asked the family to stand and we're going to sing a hymn of praise to God and then we'll get back home. But my wife was crying and she couldn't sing and so she was walking out to the truck and I followed her and the four children stood there and they sang a hymn in that field. And when we could go no more, a farm sale. And there goes the cows, and there goes what little we had there. It was all gone, all sold, and 
The auctioneer looked at me and said, uh, Mr. Heisey, is there anything else on the farm that should be sold? Is there anything we missed? I'm talking about the love of God tonight. Are you listening? For God so loved Dale, what did he do? Is there anything left on the, on the farm that you didn't sell? Anything you want to sell? No, I said, that's all we have. There's nothing else. So the man came running. He said, but up there in the barn floor, there, there, there's some bales of Johnson grass up there. Won't he sell that Johnson grass? And we didn't harvest one ear of corn, one grain of corn. But that field grew up with Johnson grass, which will grow in dry weather or not. And we cut it with a hay vine and baled it. And we had some bales up there in the barn floor. And I said, it's not worth anything. It's just junk. It's just, it's just, it's just weeds. And the auctioneer said, Mr. Heisey, there's drought in the land. The people don't have anything to feed their cattle. Would you allow someone to buy those bales? He put it up to the auction. And the price went up and we sold those bales for $2,000. And I went up across the state line where they had used school buses for sale. And I bought a used school bus with that $2,000. And we put our belongings in there and drove that bus to Costa Rica. When we got to Costa Rica, I sold the bus and earned enough money to pay for all the costs of the trip down. And we got to Costa Rica without costing us one cent. And I thought of the hymn of praise in that field of Johnson grass. God took us to a new place of service. And there God took us through experiences that he knew I needed in life. And for all the other people that suffered and all the other farmers in that county that were struggling the same way we were. God so loved us. The three years of drought led to a plan that God had in our lives. And he took care of everything at every step of the way. And God is doing that in your life and would do more of it. If I could receive his love into my heart. No one can answer the question. How does he love us? I'd like to read a few things to you here. Some things that have blessed me in the past. I'll just read this to you. To satisfy God's love for us, his own dear son must be surrendered and incarnated and passed through humiliation and through multiplied and most exquisite suffering and shame. Unknown to any other creature, the Holy Ghost must be given. Grace must be pushed with all speed. Countless multitudes of bright, strong angels must fly. The work and watch over us for thousands of years. Wisdom must be tapped to carry forward gigantic schemes of providence. Jesus must weep. His blood must flow. The Holy Ghost must groan. All because God loves us so much that all his perfections and attributes must be mustered in our behalf. Truly God loves us with every part of his infinite nature. God involves all that he has and all this that's available to him to love us. Heaven and earth to love us. And when God loves us, it is personal and individual. Because any one of us is the only one created with the uniqueness of God's holy imagination. As he planned what he's going to do with this little life that he gave to us, gave to our parents. When I was three months old, the men were out in the field cutting corn in the fall of the year. It was the month of October. I was born in July. 
They were going out through the field and turned around at the end. I think they were doing this by hand, you know, cutting and, and the, the, the fodder and by, by hand. And when they came around the other side, coming back to the house, they saw the house was on fire. And my mother was sleeping in there. And I was in a crib in that, in that house. And they got very few, few possessions out of that house. But my mother went, went through the smoke and tried to find where the crib was. And reached over the edge and down low because of the smoke and breathing was difficult. And got me out of that fire. And I was sick then for the next many years of my life. Lung problems and breathing and I couldn't talk well. And I had a school teacher told me, Dale, you'll never be able to speak that people can understand the words that you say. I had whooping cough and any kind of thing that goes with the lungs. And God cared. And God did what he could. And there were other people worth just as much to God. Other people just as God had just as much interest in them who perished in those flames. And God's choices and plans for each of our lives is different. I am still here. One of our sons is not. God's name be praised. God's will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So we receive that holy attention and distinct evidence of God's care for us. He is our own God. And God loves constantly. He loved them to the end. And Jesus loved Judas as long as there was a Judas to love. He loved him. There are three wonders to God's love for us. The first is that he should create us out of nothing and endow us with such marvelous gifts and facilities. And the second wonder is that his love for us should lead him to redeem us at such enormous cost from an awful fall. And the third wonder of his love is that he should invent ways to pay us for our little services to him and give us such stupendous rewards for such little things as we do and suffer for him. If we resist a temptation or spend an hour in prayer or give money to the poor or speak a kind word to a soul or read thoughtfully the Bible or meditate upon God's perfections or bear a little reproach for Jesus or do any little thing for him, he seems to be eager to reward us for it. He gives us such sweet blessings, such tokens of favor, as if we had really befriended him, when the fact is that we have only been seeking our own soul's salvation, and all the while have owed him a debt 10,000 times greater than we could have possibly paid. And God is rewarding us. I've experienced that. I suppose many of you have. I want all of you to experience it. Can you say that God has loved you like this? Is he even now loving you? Men give up on us. I know that. I have no problem understanding why. A bishop told me one time, if you can't make up your mind where you belong in church life, we we, we will put you where we know that you belong. They had given up on me. And then, The Lord brought into my life another elder in another congregation. And we were together one day and he he was in his egg room of his chicken house and looked up and saw me standing in the door. And for some reason, I don't know whatever moved him to do this, he looked at me and he said, 
Dale, do you know what's wrong with you? I said, I wish I did. I don't know if I do. Well, I said, I know what's wrong with you. The elders in our church are afraid of you. And I am not. And I appreciate. And I understand. I'm not afraid of you. And that melted my heart. I'd never heard words like that before. I didn't know it was possible to have a beautiful relationship with a pastor of a church, with an elder in the church. When others give up on us, God does not give up on us. You may have had a very, very difficult life. You may have done many things wrong. You may have been ashamed of your parents and ashamed of your church. You may have been ashamed of your school teacher and ashamed of your brothers and sisters. You may have made a mess of your life, but God has not given up on you because he loves you. And his plans for you have not changed. He's just as interested in using you now as before it ever happened. If we can believe that about God, you make a tremendous difference in our lives. And I just want to tell you, preachers and ministers and elders and bishops that are here tonight, be careful what you say to your the precious people that God gave you, even those that make mistakes and withstand themselves and oppose themselves, as Second Timothy chapter 2 says, and do all kinds of things wrong. Remember, God has given you a task to, to take this struggling person and connect, give them a connection with the God of heaven. Be careful the words you say. Be careful the spirit with which you do it. God will bless you and use you and strengthen a soul and this cords that, that were broken will vibrate once more and you have no idea what kind of sympathy that will be for God someday. Be careful what you do with the dear people. God has given you a beautiful flock and there's a second way that we get to know God. When we allow Him to forgive us. Again, it's a hard thought to conceive of. What are you talking about? Are you saying that we can prevent God from forgiving us? Are you saying that we can hinder the Almighty God? Are you saying that in His choice to create me in such a way that I can have the last word, whether I receive His love or not, whether I receive His forgiveness or not, do you mean that I can withstand that when galaxies and constellations respond to His word and do exactly as He said they should do and behemoth in the sea and great blue whales do what God created them to do and, and hit this little morsel that weighs less than 200 pounds, can withstand the grace of God. Why did you do that, Lord? I want volunteers, Dale. I'm looking for volunteers. I want you to serve me because you love me. Last time we quoted a very, very important verse. Do you remember it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And why should we love the Lord God with all our heart and soul and might? Because that is the way He loves us. And He loved us like that when we were unlovely. And loved us like that when we were not fit. And loved us like that when there was no reason at all in the world why He should have loved us. But He loved us. But He wants to forgive us. 
I don't know if I have any idea how many times I have hindered God's forgiveness in my life. Hindered others who wanted to help me. What all would God have done if I would not have been a hindrance? How much of my careless imperfections and neglected piety hindered the glory of God in the earth? Yet he stands willing to forgive this careless indifference and apted-minded idleness in my life. My faithless praying and desires to forgive all of it. So as to once again use a vessel unlike any other ever imagined by divine creativity. He is our own God. That's why he wants to forgive us. That's why he wants to take away the imperfections and the hindrances in our life and the thing that stifles the spiritual experience and the thing that separates us from his love and care and the thing that hinders the Spirit of the Lord from working in us. Quench not the Spirit. Do not do despite to the Spirit of grace. Resist not the Holy Spirit of God. Quench him not. Why? We can't serve Him. We can't be useful to Him. God's forgiveness humbles us, but does not demean us. The infinitude of that forgiveness, which means there's no ending to it, frees us from a prideful sense of importance. And we exchange it for worship. Worthy is the Lamb. Yet God never boasts about it. He does not act as if he has triumphed over us and gotten the victory over us and trounced us down and had the last word. God does not come to us that way. Did you notice in your Bible that after Peter denied Jesus three times, it was a terrible cursing and a denial of Christ and said, I don't know the man. It was, it was a terrible after the confessions of faith that Peter had made and the great promises and boasts that he was willing to die with him. And though all others forsake him, I won't. There's those strong words. And now before a maiden, he denies the Lord Jesus. And then the Lord came out from that high priest's house that night and, and saw Peter, looked upon Peter. And Peter saw that look. And now Peter goes on to judgment, on to Pilate, and from Pilate on to Calvary. And from to Calvary on the cross, and from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to a resurrection, a glorious coming forth of life eternal, coming out of that grave, and the stone is rolled away. And one of the first people that he meets is Peter. Jesus never called it to his attention again. It's, it's a marvelous thing how God wants to forgive us and, and never rubs it in our face and never broadcasts it before others and never shames us in having done it. All he wants to do is clear us from the hindrance in our lives and set us free and include us in his love and service. That's all he wants to do. There's never a mortifying reminder of just what all he has done to redeem us. Yet he liberally forgives us 70 times 7 has only one holy purpose. If it didn't happen yet, it's got to happen. If we haven't cleansed that life yet, it must be cleansed. If that sin is persisting in that heart, it must be taken care of. 
if it still has not yet come into sky blue Christian experience, we will forgive it again and forgive it again. And if God tells us to forgive each other that way, it's because he has learned to do that. And we have no idea. He wants to restore the image of his marred and hindered by our folly and sin. And he forgives us. We know not what. We cannot fathom what he must cleanse out from us and take care of in our lives. We see just so very, very little of it. We do not know what all he must do to take care of us. We don't know the eternal effects of our sin and how it affects others. Yet he casts all of it into the depths of the sea and he does it instantly and incessantly. All of it we heard tonight. The all-inclusive word we were told. And not only that limited portion of our unworthiness that we have awareness of, but the host of innumerable shortcomings that never dawn on us. He forgives us of all of it. May I pause here tonight and ask us, why don't we know God? And I want to offer at least one possible reason. You say, well, Dale, I, my Bible, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. I, I don't get it. And, and prayer, I, I, I'm not there. And, and, uh, I don't know where God is, but this, you know, I, I'm trying. I, I, I'm interested in it. I, I, I thought about it. I've made some steps towards it. I, I, I put some things off in my life and I, I I'm attending at the church quite regularly and I singing those hymns and I, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm making an effort, but, but it's not working. All right. Dear person, I accept that. I want to offer you a reason why. Because something happened that you could not change. And something happened that maybe you could not help. And someone has misused you, offended you, taken advantage of you. Somebody has shamed you. Somebody has rejected you. Somebody has told you to get out of the house and never come back. Somebody has denied you of your sonship, of being a daughter in that home. Thirteen-year-old girl. So we're standing outside the door of our house. She never stood there before. I'd seen her once before in life. She was at a telephone booth. I was driving down through the village. There was a telephone booth there. It's not there anymore. They don't have them because people have cell phones. But there was a telephone booth there. And she was trying to make a phone call in that telephone booth. And she was crying. And I walked over to her and said, young lady, tell me what's wrong. And she said, I must find a place to go, but I don't, have any pl- I don't know where to go. And I have no way to get there. And she had been kicked out of her house and didn't know where to go. Now this is about a year later. She's standing outside the door. And and we invite her in. She sits in the living room. Our little cabin we have there on the side of the mountain where we live. She told me this story. This is your story. I'm telling her story, but it's your story. I'm telling her story. Yours is slightly different, but it's the same thing. 
I want you to listen to her story. I want you to know why you can't receive that love. I want you to know why you won't allow God to forgive you. I want you to know why this resistance is in your heart. I want you to know why this coldness towards heaven and this Bible does not have thoughts and truth and inspiration in life for you. I want you to understand why the little girl tells me this story. Her mother is separated from her daddy, living with other man. The other man does not like this girl. And so X number of months ago, he chased her off. They raise broilers there. And sometimes they have some broilers that are inferior, crippled or something. So they butcher them and use them in the house. And they were collecting the blood of these broilers and putting it in a bowl. And this man got angry at this girl. Because she's not his, his daughter and she, he really hates her in many ways. And in his anger and frustration, he picked up that bowl of blood. And threw it into her face and ran down the front of her dress, the blood of chickens. She took off out of there. Changed her dress, tried to wash up, found some money, looked for a bus to drive to a distant town where she knew their daddy lived. And she thought she knew where he worked. She was going to try to find her true daddy. And she spent all the money she had. And the little that there was and got to the very shop where her daddy worked and she walked in the door and she walked in the door, looked at across the darkness. She saw him working in a vehicle over there and he looked up and saw her coming. And when he saw her coming, he said, get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. And she turned around and left and had no idea where to go. And I don't know how she got back to our community, but she came to our house. That was her condition. That story is different in your life. But you know the hurt that it feels. You know the offense that was caused. You know the rejection that you sensed. When someone that you needed in life more than anything else in all the world turned you away. It's hindering your relationship with God and with the church. And though you try and try and try, this looms up before you and hinders that walk with God. What are we going to do about it tonight? You've learned to face life without love, face life bracing up to it and facing it with your own strength. You've learned to do that. We can't live the Christian life that way. Fruit doesn't grow that way. Fruit receives the sap that flows up through those vines and out through those branches to where that form, that those grapes are growing. It's a relationship. We need that life. We're incorporating together with it. The vine just loves to supply that life for the branches. And the branches love to produce that fruit for the vine. And and, and God just wants to fill our life with His goodness. And and we the fruit He wants to produce on our own hearts. And there's these, these limitations and this restriction and this hindrances in our life. And it's called bitterness. It's the offense that we carry. Because of these very, very unkind things that we had no control over, but whether it happened to us. Now, what are we going to do? I said, urge you tonight to just come up here and kneel down, kneel down here, here in the front, just kneel down. And say, Lord, I fought this long enough. 
I put you off. I'm trying this in my own strength. I can't go this way anymore. I'm ready to surrender. I'm ready to receive from you. I'm ready to have your life. I'm ready to be different. I'm ready for you to break my heart. I'm ready for you to forgive me and take and cleanse me of all this terrible thing that I carry in my life and these memories and these scenes that are painted on and these videos that are playing in my mind continually and I take them away. I won't get rid of my pornography. I won't get rid of my anger. I won't get rid of my addictions. I won't be able to have peace with my wife and restore our marriage until this is taken care of in my life. And I come to you tonight, ask you to cleanse me of all this unrighteousness and receive me as your son into your heart. And I wait here before the Lord continually and trust you that what you said you'll do to me, you'll do. And give me the evidence to token that I count for you, that you love me, that you have plans for me. I come tonight. I come. In this terrible condition, I come. In this struggle of heart, I come. With my wasted years and my unfulfilled dreams, I come. And for all that I wanted to do, it turned out to be a, a mess, I come. And, 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 and here it is. And his father saw him coming a long way off. He saw him coming. He saw him coming. What did he do? He ran. He saw him coming. He ran. You won't get very far out of your seat. You won't get very far towards the front. You won't get very far. Here you're going to find God coming. and Wrap his arms around you and receive you and say, Come home, my son. Come home, my son. Come home, my son. Who will come home tonight? Come home, my son, tonight. Let's pray. Speak to us, Father. Call us, Father. Love us, Father. Save us, Father. Humble us, Father. Give us the desire, O God, to know you, to be cleansed from all this unrighteousness and all these hindering things that have tripled us and disabled us and have hindered our relationships with others. And tonight we come. We come into your arms. We come into your presence. We come to your throne. We come home tonight, O God. Receive us into yourself. Forgive us of our sin and pour into our hearts the need, meet the needs that we have as we come. Dear God, bless us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're going to sing several stanzas of a hymn. And you may just come as we sing. You may come. Rise from your seat and come. And God will take care of our needs. We'll pray with you. God will help you tonight. What shall we sing? Number 103. Sing it, brother.
just want to bless this audience tonight for the reverence and the attention and the interest in these themes. We cannot measure God's love to us. We have no idea how much he has forgiven us. And when this hurt and hindrance in our lives beyond our control but greatly damaging to us, we bring that to God and allow him to deal with it in our hearts. He gives us freedom to, towards victory, towards holy relationships, in home life and in the congregation that we cannot experience until that happens. And if there's anyone else that needs a touch of that love and forgiveness in your life, we certainly want to urge you to be humble enough to take the steps necessary to receive it. And God will bless you. And he will meet you where you are. He has great interest in your life and my life. That's the message tonight. And then he is our own God. May the Lord richly bless all of your dear people. Would you come, Brother Clinton, and dismiss the meeting?